session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Happy New Year. Um, I hope everyone had a good New Year. And this is the first show I'm doing in 2020. Very excited to get started with the books. And people have already suggested some books for this year. So please keep them coming my way. Um, and because it's the first show, I'll also be doing a recap and uh, my top 10 books from 2019 uh, in the second segment. So to begin with, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show next week is How We Work by Leah Weiss. How We Work, uh, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind by Leah Weiss, who is um, a lecture at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Actually, I got this um, from my mom as a gift, so thank you for that and looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from uh, this past week, which makes it the first book of the week for 2020, is a very special one. Um, I think the feedback I got online might maybe was the most for any book I've done these few years. Um, as far as comments, people saying they love this book or it's their favorite book or they've read it so many times and just the number of likes and comments in general was the most. So the, uh, that book is The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, a um, very famous book, or Le Petit Prince, I think, in French. Um, but this is a classic book and in a lot of ways looks like a kid's book, but really has so much depth and meaning and actually I don't think a young child they might enjoy the book but really um, I think this was my fourth or fifth time reading it and I feel like I get something more out of each time I read it and especially this time um, certain parts really hit me uh, very deeply and I found myself crying actually reading some of the later chapters that I will uh, also talk about today so if you haven't read the book it's really fascinating tale uh, with a lot of wisdom in it. Uh, so I highly recommend it in a fairly quick read and a very entertaining one. Um, but The Little Prince, uh, written by the author uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, he himself was a, um, an aviator. And so in the book, we meet a pilot or the narrator is a pilot, uh, which maybe in some ways could be him, the author himself in some ways, but uh, he might maybe plays many of the different roles in the the book because I was reading a bit about um, his own life and he he does have a plane crash and so the the book starts off with this pilot who has crashed but also um, he uh, the boy the little prince is 
in love or loves this rose. And some people say this rose might have been um, uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's wife, Consuelo. She wrote her own autobiography called The Tale of the Rose, and so maybe she represents the rose. But nonetheless, so we start with this um, gentleman, the pilot, who his plane crashes, and now he's trying to figure out what to do. But he sleeps and wakes up and sees this little boy. And so the little boy is not from Earth. And slowly we get to learn that as he talks about his own planet, which is the size of basically a house. It's a very small planet um, where he doesn't have much. And he talks about that. And, and then you kind of see this friendship develop between the little prince and this pilot, which is quite touching itself. But several stories of love come up throughout the book. Um, but so the little prince, as I mentioned about the rose, he talks about this rose that he loves and that's an interesting relationship this rose although he loves her uh, and the rose is beautiful and lovely in a lot of ways she's also very vain and not very humble which he recognizes and so he uh, the rose says things like i'm the only one like me in the universe when in fact she's not and later uh, the, the little prince comes across a, a garden full of roses when he's on earth and sees it oh his Rose wasn't the only one in the world. Um, but to me, it was interesting when you see this part with the rose trying to get love from the boy uh, and in some ways exaggerating who she is or what she is. And it reminds me of how so many of us do that or we see that happening in our friendships, in our romantic relationships, and just how we interact with the world, feeling like we ourselves are not enough in who we are and what we are and so we try to exaggerate that and become something more than just um, ourselves uh, when really we ourselves are enough to be loved and uh, surely the little prince would have loved this rose just for being her but she tries to in some ways plays even games and sometimes um, lies about certain things but the little prince loves her anyway but also it does seem like it's possible that this little rose being difficult in these ways might make it challenging for the prince and maybe that's why he does eventually leave his planet so he does leave the planet um, and, and is searching for other things and he meets interesting people on different planets i won't go through all of them one is a king who's so um, happy to be ruling over everything but really even though he feels so powerful we see that he really doesn't have a power over much he gives orders but they're orders that already will be obeyed or can be obeyed and he even says if i give an order that can't be obeyed then in a way he's the fool or he's the wrong one um we also see someone who is obsessed with counting and that's interesting like this businessman who keeps track of all the numbers and clearly uh, an analogy with how people are in this world where they're so focused on um numbers and figures and give so much importance to those things but actually really what do those things really mean um, an, an interesting one for me was also he meets a drunkard. So one of the planets has someone who is drinking. And it, it's interesting, the conversation he has with this man, the little prince asks him, why are you drinking? And he, the drunkard says, in order to forget. And he says, to forget what? And he replies, to forget that I am ashamed. And the little prince asks, ashamed of what? And he says, ashamed of drinking, which is interesting because 
Um, it kind of seems silly when you hear that logical flow, but really this is what a lot of us do or a lot of addiction can come down to this. People can feel so guilty and ashamed and embarrassed of having that addiction and to cope with that feeling, they end up drinking or doing drugs or doing whatever that addiction is again. And it becomes this kind of uh, cycle. And, and that chapter concludes as many of them do with the little prince saying grownups really are very, very odd. And so we see this throughout the book that grownups are painted um, as very close-minded people, narrow-minded who just see things on the surface, don't really see the depth of things. And in a way, we see that children can see the depth like this little prince does. And he does show this pilot, this old, this man, um, a deeper meaning to things. But so he goes through different planets, eventually ends, ends up on Earth. And so he has some journeys there, and I won't get through all of that. But the most, I think, interesting thing, person that he meets is the fox. So in chapter 21, the little prince meets the fox. And I'll, I'll focus a bit on this chapter because I think uh, this is the most meaningful part of the book. Um, so he meets the fox and the fox tells him um, that he wants the boy to tame him. And we usually think of tame just in the sense of pets or uh, people taming an animal. But he explains a little bit more clearly in that the little prince doesn't know what that Mean so he asks him a few times, what does it mean to tame? And so the taint, uh, the fox tells him, um, it means to establish ties. And the boy asks to establish ties, and he says that's right. To me, you are still just a little boy, like a hundred thousand other little boys, and I have no need of you, and you have no need of me either. To you, I'm just a fox, like a hundred thousand other foxes. But if you tame me, we shall need one another. To me, you'll be unique, and I shall be unique to you. And so a very interesting way of talking about what we maybe can think of as love or becoming special to one another. When two people meet, they're just like any other people to each other. But by slowly creating a connection, in this way he calls it taming, but by establishing those ties that person no longer becomes just any person. They become unique to you and special to you, and no one else can be like them. So whereas before you tamed each other, they were just like anyone else, the hundreds of thousands or millions of, or billions of other people, once you establish those ties and create that relationship, um, they become unique to you. And so I thought that part was really beautiful, and this is where the tears started streaming um, in this chapter, I was crying a lot, uh, reading the way the fox was teaching him about taming and in a way about love. Um, and further, the fox explains how when someone becomes unique to you, he even says, Do you see the cornfields? I do not eat bread. Wheat is of no use to me. Those cornfields don't remind me of anything, and I find that rather sad. But you have hair the color of gold, so it will be marvelous when you have tamed me. Wheat, which is also golden, will remind me of you, and I shall love the sound of the wind in the wheat. And so he explains how something that is meaningless now has so much meaning because it will remind me of you, which I thought was very sweet. And so we see that how taming and slowly the boy does tame the fox and they create a connection. And very quickly now he does feel tamed and connected. And now the boy has to leave, the little prince has to leave. And this is to me also a very meaningful part because 
the, the little prince tamed the fox, and now he has to let him know that he's leaving, and the fox says, oh, I shall cry. It is your own fault, said the little prince. I wished you no harm, but you wanted me to tame you. Yes, indeed, said the fox. But you are going to cry, said the little prince. That is so, said the fox. Then it has not helped you in any way. It has helped me, said the fox, because of the color of the wheat fields. And so he's saying that we've created a connection, we've created ties, and even for me this was very meaningful, although uh, the author doesn't explicitly say it's okay to cry or it's okay or even good for us in a way um, to create meaningful relationships and to create connections that when we have to say goodbye or when um, somehow it has to end or we don't get to see one another, it makes us sad, it makes us cry. This is actually not bad, which is something I so much agree with that um, we should live in a way that we create meaning in our life. We create meaningful relationships. We do things that matter to us, that mean something to us. And that could mean that when things don't go our way or when goodbyes happen or when relationships end or someone dies, for example, and the relationship ends in that way, we might cry, but that is not something bad. Because as the prince is saying, but you wanted me to tame you. You wanted to have this connection that now is making you cry. And the fox does not seem to have any ounce of regret for that. He actually says it does help him to have had this relationship, even if it does make him cry now. And then the fox tells him to go and see that those roses, because earlier um, the boy sees a garden full of roses and realizes, oh, my, my rose was not unique like she told me she was. But the fox tells him, yes, she is unique because... You have tamed her. You have spent this time with her, created this connection with her, and that makes her special. So he says, go to the Garden of Roses and see and tell them that they are not like your rose. They are different. And so he does that, and he says, come back, and I will tell you um, basically a secret or give you a gift. And so he, he comes back and says goodbye to the fox, and the fox says goodbye, and then adds, now here is my secret. It is very simple. It is only with one's heart that one can see clearly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And this is one of the most famous lines of the book. And I think this was the line um, that Mr. Rogers said he had written on, I think it was a chair by his bed or something, but he mentioned this line. I think he had it in French, uh, which is the original, but I'll read that last part again. It is only with one's heart that one can see clearly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And I thought that was quite beautiful. And he says that men have forgotten this basic truth. Um, for what you have tamed, you become responsible forever. You are responsible for your rose. And so I, I love that part about the taming and also this very important thing for us always to keep in mind that it is only with one's heart that one can see clearly what is essential is invisible to the eye. And so, such a profound statement about life and how we should be living and realizing that things that matter really can't be seen. And so throughout the book, when we have these grown-ups and they're focused on numbers and owning things and being busy and doing different things that we make seem so important, it's a reminder that, in fact, the most important things um, are the things we can't see. And so eventually the pilot has to say, goodbye to the boy and that is very sad and now the boy in a way shows him that because they've tamed each other when the boy goes back to his planet um, now when the 
pilot looks up and sees the stars, he will laugh because he will think of the boy's laughter. And the boy has a very sweet laugh that is mentioned uh, throughout the book a few times. And so now he says, when you see the stars, um, you will look up and laugh. And that is something quite lovely. I've given you this gift. Or he says, I've also tricked you because you're going to laugh at the stars and people will ask you why. And eventually, um, it's a little bit complicated. The boy gets bitten by a snake and we don't know, does that mean he's dying or is he going back to his his planet somehow because of that, which is what he says. But nonetheless, uh, the pilot never gets to see the boy again and even asks at the end of the book, in a way the author is saying, if you see this boy again, please let me know and write me that you've seen this lovely boy, uh, the little prince. And so I, I really did enjoy the book. As I mentioned, this is probably the fourth or fifth time I read it, but um, I think I felt it in a different way this time. And to me, that chapter with the fox is the most meaningful one and has so much wisdom in it. Um, the most important things are invisible. We see clearly with our heart and we tame one another. We establish ties and we create this unique bond. And we may become unique for one another. Uh, and that's so true. That's how love works. Uh, or even a child. All the children are beautiful, but you establish ties with your child that creates that unique bond which makes them like no other child and so i'm sure you've maybe already read it but if you haven't or even if you've had i'd recommend you reading it again the little prince by antoine de saint exupery it was a great book to start the year with and i'm happy to have read it again and um, i know many of you have enjoyed it based on the responses i've gotten but if you read it and want to share your thoughts with me please go ahead and do so all right we've reached our first commercial break we'll be right back back. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I wanted to talk about um, my top 10 favorite books that I read in 2019. I posted these on my social media so you can go check those out. Uh, and I didn't rate them in order of how much I liked them as far as the number one through 10, but just in the order that I read them throughout the year. So uh, let me start with the first book on the list is The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aaron. And this was a book I had heard about for quite a while. I'd seen it and heard about it and even had some people send it, but I had some or uh, send me messages about the book. But I had some hesitations that in some way was going to justify being sensitive or try to come up with a new diagnosis. But actually, I found the book to be very eye-opening and uh, made a lot of sense in a way of just showing that some people are more sensitive than others or even if we want to think about it we can put human beings on a spectrum of how sensitive they are and how actually emotional sensitivity and physical sensitivity can be connected or tend to be correlated and that it does seem that some percentage of the population just is this way they are born like this. Um, and actually, I saw a lot of myself in there, so I think I would consider myself a highly sensitive person, and I do have allergies and dealt with asthma as a kid, um, and those types of sensitivities tend to correlate 
uh, as the author puts it, with the sensitivity when it comes to emotions, which I also feel I have. And so I did feel like I learned a lot about myself in that book, but also just about dealing with people in general and also recognizing that sensitive, although we tend to think of it as a negative word, a bad word, or even a judgmental word when someone says you're sensitive, um, but really recognizing that it is uh, not just a bad thing, like all qualities, it, it can be good and also in some ways bad, um, but it's more complex than just saying it's all good or bad. And so the analogy I like is uh, like a microphone, like I'm speaking into one right now. And so a sensitive microphone can be very good because it can pick up sounds and let's say even clarity of sounds or differentiate between different sounds better than a less sensitive or a non-sensitive microphone. And that could be very good. Um, however, a more sensitive microphone can also get overwhelmed by sound. And so that could be a problem. And so similarly, what we find in sensitive people is that they are more attuned to other people. They'll pick up on things. They're more empathic. They can walk into a room and might get a feeling of the mood of the room better than others. And so in this way, they pick up on things that others might not or someone less sensitive might not pick up on. However, they can get overwhelmed more and they have to be aware of that. So it's being aware of who you are and recognizing the strengths, but also the potential issues that could come up with being who you are. So I enjoyed that book actually more than I was anticipating. Um, the second book on the list is... The Moral Animal by Robert Wright. And this is a classic book uh, on evolutionary psychology and was an earlier book. It was actually from the 90s. And I really enjoyed uh, Robert Wright's take on this. I, I like him as a writer and a thinker. His book, um, I think, Why Buddhism is True, was one of my favorite books from 2018. Um, but it was a great book on evolutionary psychology that uh, is a classic that I'd highly recommend to anyone interested in that topic, but uh, one of my favorite books from 2019 for sure. Book three on the list is Neurologic by Eliza Sternberg. And I've read a lot of books on the unconscious in these past few years, especially, and, and talking about different ways that we're much more... Um, our unconscious has much bigger impact than we tend to know. We're just unconscious or unaware of it. Uh, but this book, when the neurologic was uh, really interesting in how it tried to make sense of that uh, way of thinking or the ways that we think that seem wrong or bad um, or not accurate to reality and how actually there might be some logic behind it and trying to make sense, trying to make a sense of self. And I thought that book did a great job of doing uh, doing that, of illustrating those points. Uh, the fourth book on my top 10 list is Life Finds a Way by Andreas Wagner. Uh, I loved this book. Um, I know I loved it even before I started reading it just by the, the title, but what evolution can teach us about creativity. And the cover of the book was beautiful. Again, I do judge books by their covers and their titles. Um, but it was very interesting looking at how uh, the connection he made between being creative and how we um, need to do certain things like think differently rather than just refining the same idea over and over again, which we would think is how evolution works through natural selection. But there's other factors involved like genetic drift and things that can make it so that in evolution, different ideas can have an effect 
Um, and so similarly, sometimes the best way to do something isn't going to just be by doing it the way you've been doing it, improving on that. Sometimes you have to do things completely differently. Uh, but that and other themes were uh, put throughout the book and showing this connection between evolution. And I learned a, a good amount that I didn't really quite understand about how evolution works and how natural selection isn't just this survival of the fittest and a refinement of a certain way of being. And if that's the case, sometimes you'll actually lead to dead ends. And so similarly, when we're trying to be creative or think of new ideas, if we use that approach, we'll get to dead ends, but explain how we can look to nature to help us uh, or guide us when it comes to creativity or thinking about new ideas. The fifth book on the list was Letter to the Father by Franz Kafka. And this was a shorter book, although long when you considered it was a letter that was intended to be delivered to his father, Franz Kafka, the famous author, um, but never was delivered. As far as I remember, his, he gave it to his mother to give to his father, but she never did. Uh, but nonetheless, it got to the hands of his publishers at some point, and they published it, I believe, after his death. Um, but the letter itself was very interesting. You're, he was explaining to his father how their relationship has become what it has become in a way, hoping to reconcile things with him, but expressed how much he was hurt by him throughout his life and the way his father was. Uh, and you see his father is this very narcissistic and um, at times sadistic, violent, aggressive type of a person. And when you see that and you understand his father, his relationship with his father, you can understand his books better. I actually haven't read any of his novels, but reading about this book, um, you see that in a lot of his books, you see authorities that are unfair, that don't make sense. And he says that his father, he talks about how his father was unfair, how his father would make rules that somehow wouldn't apply to him himself, or you would follow them, but somehow would still get in trouble. And so you see characters in Kafka's novels who go through these types of experiences with authority where there's bureaucracies that don't make sense that you follow the rules but still get in trouble and you see that uh, how much and he even says it in the letter itself but how much of his writing was affected by his father and his relationship to him and I think more than likely this year I will read one of his novels uh, and, and talk about it on the show because I'm actually interested to see uh, that connection or to see how you can uh, see that influence of his father in his writing. Um, the sixth book on the list was Mind in Motion by Barbara Tversky. Tversky. And um, this was an interesting book because it did change the way I think uh, or gave me some new insights. And it's interesting when I say change the way I think because in, in a way this book was about how we think and how, for example, we might think that all our thinking is in words, and that's how we think about things. But she was talking about how much motion or movement or even placement in our mind um, is important, or how we see things in a way that's not just about words. And it makes sense. It really brought some things to my attention. Um, she shared a story from, I think it was Richard Feynman, who was talking about his conversation with a friend when he was probably 11 or 12. And there, he was saying how he was telling the friend that... Um, our thoughts are words and that's how we think. And it's only in words that we can think. And then the friend asked him to imagine something. And 
he said, okay, did you see it in your mind? And he said, yes. And he said, okay, well, can you tell me the words you used to describe what you saw? And it was then that he realized, well, it wasn't that he actually was seeing words. He was seeing an image. And sometimes we do that. If you imagine your loved one's face in your memory, you don't describe words about their nose and their eyes and everything all put together. You just see the image. And so it made sense to me um, and made me realize even more how much our word, our thinking is not just in words. That's definitely one way we can think, but not the only way. Um, but also shared a lot of research I was not aware of in um, displaying different ways that movement, for example, when I'm talking on the radio here, you can't see me, but I do use my hands a lot. I gesticulate, I use um, gestures, and how actually gestures can help us in explaining, help us in thinking. When people were not allowed to move their hands, when they were trying to explain certain things, they did more poorly than when they were able to use their hands. So we see it's not just nonsense when we use our hands that actually has some function that might be related to how we think or how, uh, based on the, the culture you're from, and if you write left to right or right to left, you have a different mindset about how time goes forward as far as left to right, right to left. So lots of very interesting things about how we think that I... Uh, was not aware of before. The seventh book comes from one of my favorite authors and probably the author of my favorite book, The Art of Loving. But here uh, I read Eric Fromm's book, To Have or To Be, um, which was all about how we live our lives. And a lot of times we think about having things, possessions, uh, reminds me of some of what I talked about in The Little Prince, but we think these are the important things is what you have. Um, but rather we want to be in this mode of being is more about being alive, being engaged, being um, interactive with things. And so even for me, I was struck by how he talked about when you read a book, rather than just passively taking in the words, um, we should be actively engaged as if you are having a conversation with the writer, a conversation with the author. And I thought that was very interesting, but how we can have this mindset in everything we do where you can just be passive, trying to have things, have possessions, have relationships, or you can be in relationships, be engaged in everything you do. So as always, a lot of wisdom from one of my favorite thinkers of all time, Eric Fromm, to have or to be. Book eight on the list is Inferior by Angela Saini. And um, this was talking about men and women or the research on women and how uh, it has been saying for so long that women are many things, including being inferior, that's the title, to men uh, intellectually and in different ways and how there is a lot of biases that we can find in the research uh, that has supported these views and still we see it at times and how really men and women actually are not that different and how the biases that researchers have can affect what they find, which is very true. Um, she wrote a book about race related to the same theme um, that I will read at some point this year uh, about how science sometimes supports these ideas, racist beliefs, and we think it's just the science speaking, but really it's our biases speaking that's finding what we want in the data and in the research. So that was a very interesting book on that topic of seeing how women have been viewed to be inferior in many ways when in fact the research when you look at it more closely 
or try to have a more objective viewpoint, you'll see that it's not quite the case. Book number nine on the list is The Limits of Whiteness by Netta Magbula. And um, this book I really loved and was very lucky to be joined on the show uh, by the author, Netta Magbula. She um, described the book and we got to have a nice interview about it. But The Limits of Whiteness was about Iranian Americans and the issues they deal with when it comes to race. And this limit of whiteness is that in some ways, um, or legally, Iranians are considered white, Iranian Americans, but we know that the experiences of Iranians make them feel not white in a way. So they're at this limit of whiteness. And what does that mean? And so it was a great historical account of Iranians and race and their status and experiences legally in different ways. But also she interviewed many young individuals um, about their experiences being Iranian Americans. And that was very interesting uh, as well. And even when we talk about this limits of whiteness, I don't know much about it. I've just seen some headlines about it, about how Iranians are being detained or having some issues when they're coming back into the United States right now related to what's happening between the U.S. and Iran. So um, it's interesting that Iranians are considered legally white in a lot of ways, but then we see their experiences, definitely anything but that at times. So that was a book I really enjoyed um, looking at Iranian Americans and their experience, The Limits of Whiteness by Netta Marboulet. And the 10th book on the list was one of the last books uh, I read this year was Permission to Feel by Mark Brackett. Uh, the title itself, Permission to Feel, anyone who listens to this show can see how I would be drawn to that. And there was that theme of just being allowed to feel, that we want to have that permission to feel. We should give each other that space to feel okay to feel. Um, but it was a book that essentially looked at emotional intelligence and did a great job of presenting how significant and how important it is and how we shouldn't downplay the impact of emotions and feelings and how they are really what makes life what it is. Uh, and he also talked about his, um, what he's developed, the ruler method when it comes to emotional intelligence. Um, hopefully I'll remember that. Uh, R, first R is recognize, then the U is understand. L is for labeling our feelings. E is for then expressing them appropriately, which can be much more challenging than it seems because it's not just about expressing your feelings however you want, whenever you want. Uh, and then the last R is for regulate. How do we regulate our feelings? We're not just, um, again, able to feel. We should have the permission to feel, but how we express them and deal with them is very important can make or break our lives and our relationships. So those were the top 10 books for me for 2019 in the order I read them. Um, really from every book I read, I feel that I get something out of and I enjoy that process, but those were 10 of my favorites. Uh, if you have thoughts on the list or, again, other books for me to read this year, I'm always looking for more books to read, so send those recommendations my way. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And so this is the first show of the new year. And usually 
um, on the New Year's shows early on in the year, I like to talk about setting goals because I know so many people are setting New Year's resolutions and goals and almost it has a cheesy feeling to it at times because people make them in sometimes a way of just imagining or dreaming what can happen. And actually, I'll, I'll share some thoughts on that. And last week, I talked about the theme of New Year, New You and how actually I don't like that uh, phrase very much. It becomes very common around New Year's, but for two reasons. One is that we imagine we're going to be this different person tomorrow or next week or whenever it is when we think of our future self. We don't see ourselves. We see almost another person and in a way literally. And so we just think they can become totally different or we're going to be this totally different person, which is not true. And the other part I don't like about New Year, New You is that in some way implies that the you today is not enough. And I'd rather we love the you you are. You don't need to become a new you. Of course, we are hopefully always growing and evolving, but we don't need to become someone different completely. Uh, we should actually love who we are now and recognize how we are enough as we are to love ourselves. Um, but when it comes to setting goals, I do think it's a great thing and it's always good to have some goals in mind and set and something to work towards. Um, and so I've talked in years past about setting SMART goals and SMART being an acronym. I won't go into too much detail about that, but I think it can be helpful to be aware of this uh, when it comes to setting our goals because sometimes people will set a goal like, I'm going to be healthier this year. Uh, I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to read more. All very good goals or um, things to want to do, but it becomes very unclear what does that mean? What does getting in shape mean? What does reading more mean? And so setting SMART goals can help us um, with this. So the first S is for specific. So you want to set a specific goal and then the M is for measurable. So a specific and measurable goal means, um, for example, mine was very easy of re uh, reading a book a week, um, became clear. And I even had, had that first time written about the page numbers and things, but sometimes the books have been shorter or longer. Um, but I wanted to make it very specific because it's easier to, to measure your progress or to know what you're working towards and know how close you are when we do that. The A in the SMART goals is for attainable. And what that means is you want to find a goal that isn't so hard that you can't achieve it and you're just going to give up and really there'll be no point, but also not so easy that achieving it won't make you excited. You want to set a goal that's really in that sweet spot of something challenging um, yet attainable because that's going to make you stay motivated. If it's too hard, you're going to give up very easily. And if it's too easy, you won't really care about achieving it. You might give up or not care much, or even if you achieve it, it won't be very meaningful to you. And so that brings us to R, which sometimes they say relevant. What that means is it has to mean something to you. So that's why I can't set your goals because I don't know what matters to you or what will be important for you. You have to reflect on yourself um, and see what that is. And the T usually is for time relevant or time specific, meaning that set a goal and a deadline. Because if you just say, I want to lose five pounds, well, it's like, by when? Um, you want to make it more clear. So I do think setting smart goals can be helpful because uh, you see this a lot where people will say, I want to stop smoking. Well, what does that mean? By what date? And maybe are you going to set some intermediary goals? I want to smoke just five cigarettes a day by February 1st and then whatever. And then also creating a plan is very important also. Um, and that's something to keep in mind. When people make these goals, we sometimes just think of the result 
which is a good place to start because that can get you excited. That can get you motivated, imagining that when you achieve that goal, and actually this can be a helpful part of actually getting yourself ready is to imagine it in as much detail that visualization can be very helpful. Imagining how good you will feel. What is it going to look like, feel like, smell like when you achieve that goal that can actually get you motivated. So we do want to think about the result, of course, and how we're going to feel. But sometimes we miss the part of figuring out the path. So it's like saying, I want to be in New York, but I'm not thinking of how I'm going to get there. Just thinking about the destination is fun, but I'll never get there if I don't think about the uh, preparation and getting to that goal, getting to that destination. But I also wanted to share related to this um, post from my brother, Parham. He put this, I think, on all his social media, but I'm looking at his Instagram now. But he was talking about, uh, aren't the resolutions we set nearly always both too lofty and too limiting? So too lofty because under the warm glow of the new year, we focus on the result we desire rather than the arduous, consistent effort it will take to get there, but too limiting because our goals can only come from the limited data set of our experiences to date. Um, and so he adds, let's focus our resolutions on specific habits and behaviors, things under our control that cultivate growth in the areas we care about. And so I did like this. I didn't read all of it. You can go to his um, Instagram, Parham Hlaqui, to see that full. But I thought it was interesting the points he made um, because, yes, as I mentioned, the too lofty at times we think about just the result. We think about ourselves and this future self as someone different from who we are today that can do things that we can't do today in some way that it's going to be easier. So someone who never wakes up in the morning, all of a sudden says, I'm going to wake up at five every morning and go for a run. Probably not if you're someone who has a hard time waking up in the morning. Um, and so you have to think about yourself and not be too lofty in thinking I'm going to be this completely different person because you're going to go with yourself into the new year, new day, new week, new month, whatever it is. It's not a new you. Uh, as much as the catchphrase or the hashtag might tell you, it's going to be you. And so you have to think, how will you be successful? Um, but also we can be too limited when we think now. And so I think setting goals is very good, but also means we set them not as something set in stone. We do want to be committed to them, but we have to recognize that we might evolve or change over time. You actually um, might realize you can do something better than what you had said. And I like that he said focusing on habits and certain behaviors, because that's also something important to keep in mind. What a lot of people do is they say, okay, I'm going to work out this year. And so they set a goal of, let's say, working out four times a week, five times a week. And then what we tend to do is we say, oh, I, I'm already, I already broke my resolution. And then we just give up and we say, that's it. But the whole point should be the habit or the behavior that we're trying to create or the, the, uh, value, let's say, uh, of let's say being healthier, if that's what we're going to go towards, well, then we shouldn't just give up because we didn't make this resolution that we set on day one. Uh, we should be focusing towards becoming healthier. And so, uh, yes, we want to set goals, as I was saying before, that can help us by being more specific, but we don't want to think that, well, I have to give up now because I didn't meet the goal. So what's the point? If the whole point was to be healthier to take better care of yourself, then make that the focus. So I did like uh, that a lot about what Parham um, wrote, was that keeping in mind um, that we should want to 
grow and we should try to grow by trying to have values, behaviors, habits in our lives that are important. And so sometimes we'll come up with more concrete ways of measuring that. We'll come up with concrete ways of achieving that. But if we think something is important, make that the priority. So if being healthier is the priority, because by January 4th you broke your resolution doesn't mean, well, now you don't have to worry about being healthy this year, or you shouldn't try to be healthier this year, or you shouldn't try to read more, or you shouldn't try to quit smoking, or whatever that habit, that behavior, or that important thing was. We should make sure we don't just give up because we didn't meet that goal, which I think is interesting. So, so many people set goals December 30th, December 31st, January 1st, but I'm sure far fewer people set goals February 1st or other times. Do More people do set goals first of the month, first of the week, but compared to what we do at the turn of the year, it becomes a lot less because we give up, because we think, well, I failed. And in some ways, by doing that, we're letting ourselves off the hook. We say, oh, I didn't meet that goal. I didn't. I broke my resolution, so I'm free. I'm out of jail. Um, kind of like how people do with diets, and I've been guilty of that before. You say, I'm going to keep this type of strict diet, and then you break the diet and say, well, I broke the diet, so I should just now break it all the way or do whatever I want. Well, if the whole point was to be eating healthier, then the mindset should shift towards eating healthier, not, well, I broke some rules that I'd made, so now nothing matters anymore. Everything that matters to you should still matter. So uh, I thought that was an important point that Parham made there that for all of us to keep in mind, set goals. I think it's wonderful to set goals. It can get us excited. For me, like I've mentioned a few times already, uh, the book of the week, Doing that has been a great uh, added bonus to my life and has been something I'm really happy I'm doing, and that's why I'll be continuing to do it. Um, so set goals, be excited about them, do everything you can to try to achieve them, but keep in mind the underlying motivation for that goal. What is it about, really, about being healthier, achieving certain things, or living a certain type of life? And then make sure that that's the priority, that you're not just focused on uh, the goal and that's the only thing that matters. And so don't give up on the goal if you've broken your resolution, quote unquote. Uh, focus on what habit, behaviors, values you want in your life. You're not going to be a new you. Um, you can continue to grow, but you don't need to be a new you because the you you are today is good. And so keeping that good self and keep becoming better because we all can do that, but you don't need to be someone else. You yourself are enough. So you can go check out that post on Powerhome's Instagram. So Powerhome, thank you for that motivation for this last segment. Um, the book of the week for this week is How We Work by Leah Weiss. How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. Looking forward to reading that and sharing that with you next week, but I'll be with you this Wednesday. Uh, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio, to everyone listening out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful night. Ninety-four-seven KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.